Uh, Why don't you all stand with me as we read from God's Word? We'll be in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 18 to 29. Once again, for all of our first-time guests, uh, we're glad that you're here. For those of you that don't know me, my name's John. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I get the privilege of uh, preaching God's Word to you this morning. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 18. It'll be on the screen. Write to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of the sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction unless they repent of her works. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I am not putting any other burden on you. Only hold to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and the one who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter, and he will shatter them like pottery. Just as I have received this from my father, I will also give to him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for just that. Give us ears to hear, Father. Um, I pray whatever preconceived notions that we may have that may keep us from hearing your word and treating it as what it is, not the words of men, but the words of God, I pray that you would deal with that, Father. Would you remind us, that your words are good, Father. Would you remind us that all of your words are good? Would you remind us that all of your words are good for all of us? Uh, We ask that this would be the conviction of our heart. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, You can take your seats. One of the things that makes communication tough um, is that words don't just have meanings. Words have feelings. So here's what I mean by that. We're going to go back to English class, right? With each word, uh, there's both a denotation and a connotation. All right? Yeah, I see. Uh, There's a few of y'all that paid attention in the eighth grade. Denotation 
is this. It is the literal meaning of a word. The dictionary definition. What does a word mean? Hamburger, right? It is the sandwich, the whole. It's not just the meat patty on the inside. Things like that. Uh, The problem with words, though, is that we don't decide what to do with words based on their denotation. Because we don't make decisions with our heads. We make decisions with our hearts. So as we talk about words, uh, what's more important with words is not the denotation, but the connotation. And what that is, it is the idea or feeling that a word invokes. Or... It's the emoji that you would use to communicate that word, right? That's what it is. It's, it's the feeling that you get when you hear that word. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to throw out two words, and we're not going to start with the denotation. We're going to go right to the connotation. The two words that I'm going to throw out that lead us right here in this text are this, tolerance and judgment. Tolerance and judgment. One word likely puts a smile on your face. One word likely puts a frown on your face. If you had to assign one of those words to one of these lists of emojis, which one would you do? Would tolerance be the first one or the bottom one? Likely the bottom, right? Smile, roses, you know. Hearts in between two yellow people. Um, But then you get to judgment. And which one would you assign judgment to? Yeah, right, that top, that face, just, yeah, I don't even know what that face is, but it feels like the, like, judgment face, the I'm being judged face, fire, hammer, and a gavel. As we think of the concept of judgment, it fills us with feelings of sadness or things being unfair or mistakes. The judge is choosing the wrong person on American Idol. How did right they win? Spiritually, it's associated with a group of folks that are prideful, that are hypocritical, divisive, uninformed. And as Christians and as people that genuinely want the welfare of the world that we live in, we tend to want to avoid this at all costs. And you let the world that we live in tell it, and they'll tell you the antidote to this is tolerance. When we think of tolerance, we think it's noble. It seems like it's the path towards unity. It's, it's pleasant. It's all about oneness. It's filled with love. It brings in conflicting people and puts them in a place where we all can just get along. It gives us the space to be in a diverse group of folks. One seems like it is a peaceful pathway The other seems like it's a painful pathway. And you and I don't choose how we relate to words based on what they mean, but how we feel about what they mean. So at times we find ourselves leaning, being drawn to tolerance and avoiding this sense of judgment at all costs. And the challenge today is not to let the connotation define how you treat a word, but let God's word define how we treat a word and a concept. I'm reminded of this uh, character, a guy by the name of Anigo Montoya in The Princess Bride, right? There's this one guy that continues to use this word and he tells him, um, 
you keep using that word, but I do not think it means what you think that it means. And I think those are Jesus' very words to us as we think about judgment and tolerance. So turn with me to Revelation 2, verses 18. You should already be there. Starting in verse 18, it says this, Write to the angel of the church in Thyatira, Thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. We'll start right there. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, what you'll know is that all these letters start off the same. It is Jesus Christ speaking a specific message to a specific church, so a little bit of context is important. Thyatira was a city that majored in trade, so they had all of these trade guilds. Well, with these trade guilds, right, your ability to work and provide for your family was all tied into how well you fit into these trade guilds. The problem was in Thyatira, these trade guilds each had, uh, they each had a patron god that they would offer sacrifices to. And as they would do that, you had to come in and you have Christians who found themselves in a place where they had to put up with this idolatry that took place, and not just put up, but they had to participate in the idolatry that took place in the workplace for them to be able to provide for their family. So they could live with their Christian convictions and pull away, but if they pull away and they reject participation in this meat sacrifice to idols, it would affect their ability to be able to feed their family. So you have a group of Christians that are conflicted with, all right, how much do we tone down our Christianity? How much can we accept the things in the world so that we can live in this world? How much do we have to stand out? How much are we supposed to tolerate? And in light of that pressure that they face here, Jesus reveals himself uniquely as, hear this, the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. That phrase, the Son of God, and throughout the rest of this psalm, there are allusions back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a psalm all about Jesus being God's true Son, God is going to put him on the throne and Jesus is going to judge this whole world one day in righteousness. And if you want to find peace, you better make sure that you're on his side at the end of the day. So he starts off and he talks about Jesus describes himself as this son of God. And then he talks about his eyes. And when the Bible talks about eyes, it talks about it in terms of perception. So this is a God who's Eyes are like flames of fire. This is a God who has incredible discernment that can see in the dark. And he sees and judges all of humanity. And not just that, but his feet are like fine bronze. So when he puts his foot down, it's going to stay down. He doesn't just have insight. He has power to judge and cast this judgment. So already from the outset we find a group of people that are pressured into tolerating the surrounding culture and Jesus reveals himself not just as the gracious God that loves all, although he is, but he specifically reveals himself of this God that can and will judge all. So we already see that contrast with tolerance and judgment there in the first 
verse. And the one that you and I would frown about, the one that would bring up the emoji face of sadness is the one that Jesus from the outset has linked with himself. So we see that judgment is not entirely a bad thing, and we're going to go and define what all of these uh, terms mean. But like all the rest of the letters, he starts off with this, a commendation for the church, something that this church does right. Verse 19, he says this, I know your works, right? What an amazing thing that the God who sees all that sees what's done in the dark that the very first thing that he brings up is not what they do wrong, but what they do right. He says, I know your works. Look, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. The word order is important there. Your love and faithfulness, those are internal motivations. Service and endurance are external actions. So he starts off and he's praising this church because when they talk about love, they don't just talk about love. It actually leads them to do something. And not just that it leads them to do something, he ends off and he says this, I know that your last works are greater than your first. You and I know that sometimes when we do the things that God has called us to do, we have great strength at the start. But then as time goes on, it gets harder and harder and harder to do those things. And we don't do them as well as we did at first. That's not what this church does. He looks at this church and he says, y'all are filled with this love and faith. Y'all are doing all of these good works and your love is growing. And so Jesus comes in, looks at this group of folks and says, your love is growing and that's something that pleases me, and pay attention to this. I want you to hear this. God does not take your faithfulness for granted. God expects you and I to be faithful. It's the least that we can do for a God that gave his life for us, but just because he expects it doesn't mean that he won't celebrate it where he sees it. God has not overlooked an ounce of of any one of our faithfulness, and that's something for you and I to rejoice in. Those of you that are parents, right, you know, you know, it's not just that you want to praise what your kids do, but when your kids do something, you tend to even praise their imperfect obedience. Their imperfect milestones. My daughter just started to do peekaboo like a few days ago, but she does it terribly. Like her hands go on the side of her face and then they come out. And so I want to say, ah, oh, you kind of defeat the purpose. You got to cover. But I praise her because, no, 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 this is progress. Listen, y'all. All of us obey God imperfectly. But he doesn't come immediately with critique. God is good enough that he praises our imperfect obedience. And he praises this church because their love is producing work. And look, their love is growing. And I want you to hear this. As you read the Bible, pay attention to the things that please God and do those things. God does not hide the things that please him. Right? It's not like 
middle school when you had that crush, right, and you had to go to her friends and say, hey, what kind of a guy does she like? She likes strong guys. All right, word, I'm going to get in the gym. She likes smart guys. All right, I'm going to buy some fake glasses, right? Uh, She likes guys that love to camp and to go outside. Uh, Tell me about her friends, right? So it's all of these things where we have to, like, try to find out what they like and then do those things. The Bible is not that. It's not a riddle for you to figure out. The Bible is a roadmap for you to follow. And what God loves is when Christians have love that is growing. When was the last time that you got up and as you read God's word and as you pray and as you get ready for the day, you sit back and think to yourself, what pleases God? And how can I live my life today in a way that God is pleased with? If you haven't, it's a great exercise for you to do in the morning. I love, uh, from the time that we started this church, once per month we gather as a whole church to pray. The whole church does not come, but we invite the whole church to come and pray. Mo led us in a time on Wednesday, and through the next 10 months, we're just going to walk through this book, How to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health, and the first question is just this. Am I more loving? Am I more patient than I was? Am I more kind? And so what we did for an hour was we just sat and talked and prayed for one another that God would make us more loving because a growing love is something that pleases God. He has not hit it. And to the extent that we progress in it, you and I please God. And even though he expects it from us, he celebrates it. And that's how this starts off. This is a church full of growing love. But I want you to hear this. Um, Our strengths, our virtues, taken to the extreme, can also be our vices. So a tree can grow up and provide shade, and a tree can be overgrown to the extent that the branches will eventually come and tear this house down. And so what Jesus does is he doesn't just tell them what's commendable, but he gives them a correction. And the correction that he gives them is one that you and I need to hear as well. The correction that he gives this church is that their love has overgrown and they've majored in it to the point where they are tolerant of things that they should not be under the guise of love. So he starts off and says this, verse 20, right? As clear as God tells us what pleases him, God goes on and tells us what displeases him as well. And he says this, verse 20 to 23, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she did not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction unless they repent of her works. I will strike her children dead 
then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. He's critiquing this church because their tolerance has led them to compromise. And if you were here last week, you would know that what we talked about last week, the previous letter, was all about compromise and how the tiniest compromise can ruin the toughest church. And you may read this and say, well, this sounds like the same thing. John, I heard what you said last week, and you said it for an hour. So I really heard what you said last week. So this week, I can tune out. And let me just challenge you with that. The Bible often repeats things. But just because it repeats things, and we've heard it before, it doesn't mean that we don't need to hear it again. Right? The Bible is not an essay that God had to turn in that reached a page limit. Right? So, so he's like, I'm almost done, but I really don't have anything more to say. So like we used to do in school, I'm just going to repeat myself, and I'll make the font a little bigger so that I can reach this page limit. That's not the Bible. If God is repeating himself, it's because it's absolutely necessary, and we will not get it and retain it unless he says the same thing in different ways with different force. So he comes here, and after previously warning a church about the danger of compromise, he looks here and he gives us a picture of what it looks like when a church doesn't guard its front door. And they're tolerant. Or they see love as the all-excusing virtue. That what we see here in verse 20 to 23 is this. Tolerance may be a peaceful road, but it's a peaceful road that leads to a painful ending. Tolerance is a peaceful road that leads to a painful ending. As we get to judgment, it's going to be increasingly clear what I mean by tolerance. But here's what takes place. Give me a little bit to set a little bit of context so all of this makes sense. He says this, but I have this against you. Look, you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Likely this isn't her actual name, right? Nobody names their kids the bad guys of the Bible, right? You don't have many friends named Lucifer, right? And I guarantee you don't have many friends named Jezebel. Jezebel was a foreign queen that came into Israel that married a spineless, cowardly king and led the nation of Israel into idolatry. So her name is synonymous with a woman that would deceive and seduce people. So what he's saying about this church is, you know, there's actually somebody inside y'all's church that fits the criteria and this mold. That is, she may not be Jezebel, but she's Jezebel-ish. She's raised up and look at what he says. Uh, you tolerate the woman Jezebel, verse 20, who calls herself a prophetess, so she gives herself this label of somebody that hears right from God and has this insight and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat, sacrifice to idols. We talked about this some uh, last week, but let me just 
clear things up. So this is likely somebody that's come in, has the gifting and charisma that's needed to get a whole bunch of people to listen to her. And here's what she says to this church, to a group of Christians that are struggling with, all right, how much of my Christianity do I have to check at the front door before I go to my job or work or school or friendships? I still want to stand out. I still want to love God. But I do have pressure to fit in and to participate in things that go on. And so you have folks that are in tension. And so what she does is she comes and convinces them that it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to Idols. So, like I said at, at, uh, at the front, each trade guild that folks were a part of would have their own god, and what they would do is they would set this meat apart for this god to honor and serve this god. Then, after they killed the sheep or the meat, they would all sit there and eat in honor of that god. So, for uh, imagine that you're at work and you're a Christian. And everybody's eating. And then they go right from there and and are involved in all types of stuff. And you say, no, I'm going to pass. And they say, why? And you have to say to your boss, well, because y'all are actually sacrificing to a God that is actually no God at all. And if you keep this up, uh, the true God has reserved a special place in hell for all the people that don't do things like like he does things. And I know it sounds harsh, but it's really good, but I need you to turn from your sin or else you're going to find yourself in hell. Now about that raise, can, can, can we talk about that? Do you see how tricky it is, though? That by virtue of them holding on to their Christianity... They are accepting the repercussions that come from that. And so they're saying, how do I do this? Because if I don't participate somewhat, then it is going to mean I'm going to be an outcast. I'm not going to have a job. I'm not going to have this same friend group. I'm not going to have the influence that I want. I'm not going to have the same comforts and luxuries that everybody else has. And when you get Christians in conflict, not knowing how to live in this world, knowing that their Christianity is going to cost them something, somebody always rises up and gives them the easy way out and makes it seem as if things aren't as bad, that you can have your Christianity and your life as well. So what she likely does is she takes advice from the Apostle Paul and leaves some out. 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, Paul lays out this concept of a Christian's freedom. Yeah, against the backdrop of meat being sacrificed to idols. And what Paul says is this. All right, Christians, hear me. There is no such thing as any other God but the true God. So when people are sacrificing to this God, Paul's like, it's really just meat because they're sacrificing it to nothing. So Paul's going to say, you actually have freedom to eat it and it's not sin. But Paul says, listen, although there's not a true God there, 
people, the intent of their heart is to worship something that's not God. So if you eat it with them, what you're doing is you're participating and you're giving validity to what they do. So even though there's no God, the intent of their heart is to sin against this God. And so Paul's saying it would be wrong for you to do that. So Paul's going to say, Christian, be careful how you use your freedom. But it's likely Jezebel comes in and takes that first part. No, no, listen, Paul said there's no such thing as a God. So of course you're free to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And she stops there and leave off the rest. And so what she gives is half-truths that tell folks, that lead folks to believe that they can have their Christianity and live any way that they want to. And J.I. Packer says that a half-truth masquerading as a whole truth is a complete untruth. So what she does is she convinces them that it's okay to not be okay. Come as you are. We all have struggles. God is love. That's the supreme virtue of God. Here's the peaceful pathway. And God himself is going to deal with that, but his specific call to this church, his indictment to them is, y'all know better and y'all are silent. Y'all let it happen. Y'all didn't say anything. God's beef with them is they tolerated it. And for the time being, it probably kept this church from a church split. Things looked good. The church looked inclusive. The church looked peaceful. The church looked loving. However, looks can be deceiving. Edmund Burke says this, the only thing needed for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. So we look and see, all right, what's the outcome of their tolerance? What good did it actually do in the life of the church? And here's what we see. One, the very first thing that we see, the outcome, is God's displeasure of them. So in the same way this God is clear about things that it pleased him, after that, verse 20 starts off and it says this, but this I have against you. The one that we were trying to please, the one that we want to seek his pleasure, actively communicates his displeasure. Not only do you have a group of folks now that have displeased God, but the gullible are deceived. Look at verse 22, or verse 20 says this, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, look, and teaches and deceives who? My servants. It is God's people. It is the well-meaning people inside of the church that are woefully ill-informed, that are swept away. And your tolerance may be fine for you and that you're not so easily swept away, but other people are. And lastly, not just God's displeasure, not just the deception of the gullible, but here, but the destruction of the wicked. Verse 22, look, I will throw her into a sickbed. Right? 
This is contrasting this Jezebel who led people towards having their Christianity on this bed of pleasure. God says she's not going to have a bed of pleasure. I'm going to throw her onto a sickbed. Those who commit adultery with her into great uh, affliction unless they repent of her works. I will strike her children dead. This is probably not her literal children. It's figurative for those that have so embraced her teaching. They're basically her spiritual offspring. And so what we see here is though tolerance, somebody that was clearly off, seemed like the most peaceful path. It was a peaceful road that ended very painfully. And what we learn from this is, you know, you give an allowance to compromise, and it will not be long before you find yourselves morally bankrupt. How do we spot these folks in our day? I think it's pretty clear here in our days, same as in their days, this person is somebody that is a self-proclaimed whatever they are. And we live in a world where it seems like gifting, talent, eloquence, and charisma give people a platform to speak. Social media gives people the self-proclaimed platform and status. And the clear mark here is she's somebody that claimed to have special revelation from God, special insights into how we're to live. And I want you to know, Christian, that's why we have the Bible, because the special way that God communicates with us is the same. We all have the same thing, so we can verify what somebody said. Here's one other way that you can spot out this type of person. Not just by what you see in them, but what you see in the people tethered to them. While they may increase in influence and intelligence, it's likely that they decrease in holiness. So what you have is this crew that aligned with her and supposedly found their way into this freedom, but it's not producing a holy life that was better than what they had before It's producing something that was much worse than what they had before. This tolerance of her and this type of teaching and not saying anything and allowing it to be here is not compassionate. Any more than it would be compassionate to let somebody take a nice afternoon drive off of a steep cliff. What's compassionate is saying something to tolerate sin and to leave it unaddressed and unchecked is to be complicit in the very destruction that somebody themselves will face. And it's not just in the things that we say, it's in the things that we don't say. Proverbs 29.5 says this, the person who flatters his neighbor spreads a feet for his net, or Spreads a net for his feet. Makes a lot more sense. (laughs) Flattery can be vocal, but it can also be silent. Have you ever been around somebody that 
you like or want to impress your boss, friend, coworker, somebody you're trying to date, and they say things, and you know they're dead wrong in the things that they say, and you just kind of nod your head and smile because you know that to confront them would likely create distance in between you. I think that the same is true here. And I just want us all to hear this. Listen, you are not more compassionate than God himself. You have never met anybody that is more compassionate than God himself. If your compassion leads you to contradict clear things in God's word, it is not compassion. And here's what I love uh, about this. Last week, a church that found itself in compromise was told to repent and fix things. This week, there is no clear call for this church to repent, but it really, all that we see here is God contrasts his action with theirs so that you and I see how we act, how we can be silent and tolerate, but then we look and see how God acts. And what we see is probably a clearer definition of judgment. Look, if tolerance is the peaceful road to a painful ending. I want you to hear this. Judgment is the painful road to a peaceful ending. Right? So here, first of all, definition about judgment. When you and I think judgment, the reason why the sad emoji face comes up, the reason why the fire comes up, is when you and I think of judgment, we think of condemnation. Condemnation is a type of judgment, but judgment as a whole is much bigger than just condemnation. Judgment is about clarity. Here's the definition of judgment. The ability to make considered decisions or come to sensible conclusions. Judgment is about sensibilities. Judgment is about there are things that conflict There are things that confusing, and my judgment is my humble way of bringing clarity and saying something is better than something else. And we do this all the time. You woke up, checked the weather, and you decided there is something in my closet to wear that is better than something else. You don't take all the rest of your clothes and burn them. You say, This is better. It's clarity. It's clear. This is how I'm going to act. Listen, brothers, sisters, for those that call, for those of us that call ourselves Christians, judgment is a part of who we are. Not condemning anybody, but bringing clarity. And look at what God does. Look at how his judgment brings clarity. Uh, He starts off and says this, verse 20. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Look at this. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. People think of tolerance as patience, judgment as impatience, And that is not true. Both of those are types of patience. 
Tolerance is a patience without a purpose. I don't expect you to change. I don't expect you to do anything different. I'm not even going to say what you're doing is wrong. So I'm patient because I don't expect anything. Judgment is this purposeful patience. It's saying it's okay to not be okay. Anybody that comes in that finds their way into the door, that finds their way into Christianity, nobody comes in okay. And it's okay to not be okay. But it's just not okay to stay not okay. There's got to be progress. And so what he says here is, look, God's like, you want to talk about tolerance. I am a holy God that based on one sin, Of the angels, I cast them all down, and none of them are ever going to have a chance to come back. You want to talk about tolerance, and God is saying this. I gave her time to repent. This is a God whose eyes are like fire that sees every wrong thing that she's done, this leader. And what he says is, I've been patient. I gave her time, but she didn't want to repent. So God's judgment at the end of the day is actually going to reveal two things. One is this. It's going to reveal the depth of God's patience. Look at how committed he is to his creation. That he would give somebody doing things that are destructive, continued breath in their lungs, and they would continue to hurt other people. But God's saying, "Uh, uh, but I want to be patient. I want to give them, and it shows the depth of God's patience and God's love. Verse 22, right? It goes on and says this, look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction, look, unless they repent of her works. Even the people that are actively involved, he's giving them a chance to repent. Where God wants to judge, he just judges. When he warns of judgment, he does it to invite people to repent. Look at how, look at the depth of God's patience. Look at your own life and be reminded of the depths of God's patience. That just right now, where you are, you can be reminded of how oh so patient God has been with us. And that should lead you to shout. And if you don't want to tell on yourself, then just shout on the inside. But we all know that we're all on the same page. But it doesn't just reveal the depths of his patience. It reveals the depths of her pride. Even when God has been incredibly patient and has not given her what she deserved, it shows how committed she was to her sin, to her way of doing things, thinking that her way is better. But God's judgment, when it comes, doesn't just reveal his patience. It doesn't just reveal our pride. It reveals his power. Verse 23, I will strike her children dead. Look, then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I said judgment is a painful road that leads to peace, and here's what makes it most painful, that when God allows somebody to prominently be raised up, and then he judges them the same way that he did with Pharaoh, 
It leads you and I to be reminded that the God that we serve is a holy God who will judge each of us according to our works. And that, my friends, is a painful and a scary reality. Because even if we aren't guilty of compromise in the same way that she was, we are guilty of being silent when we have seen people fall into the same thing. And our silence makes us complicit in their destruction. It's a painful road. So what are we to do? Those of us that know the right thing and would do the right thing if we could, but can't do the right thing, what's the hope that we have? Verse 24, hear this. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, that's his way of saying like that there's a group of folks who claim to have these depths, this spiritual insight into freedom. But it's him saying, ah, those are really Satan's bag of tricks. As they say, look, I am not putting any other burden on you. Only this, hold on to what you have until I come. And look, the one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nation. So the question is, what are his works that we're to keep? What does that mean? Does it mean that you and I should do more, that you and I should be more active in speaking out against folks and only as we obey God more, then you and I will be able to hold on and not be fearful of this judgment? And like we said the first week, listen, the best way to interpret the Bible is to use, say it with me, the Bible. John chapter 6, 28 to 29 says this. What can we do to perform the works of God? A group of folks that asked Jesus this same question, and he says this. This is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. And I want you to hear this. God sent the law into the world to show us his holy standard, but what the law did, what the Ten Commandments did, was it showed God's incredible patience with us, but it also showed our great pride in that even though God tells us the way to live that would actually bring us the prosperity that we hope for, you and I have broken every one of those things. So God's law, though good, shows his patience, but it also shows our great pride and it's an indictment on all of us. But God didn't stop sending things into the world there. God sent his son Jesus into the world. And do you know what Jesus did he came into this world to fulfill all of that law so Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live and do you know what actually got him put on the cross not healing people what got him put on the cross was that as he came and he found people speaking on behalf of God that were actually leading them away from God he didn't tolerate it So he didn't just do things, he spoke up and told us the real way to get to God was through him and not through all of these works. And as a result of speaking up to protect you and I, the people that he spoke up against put him on the cross. And the one who lived the perfect life for us died. And the destruction that we earned, he took it. So that the destiny that he earned, 
you and I could get it. What do we do to do the works of God? We put our trust in Christ himself. We step back and we say, I know that I'm not okay. But it's, it's not okay to stay there. So I give control of my life to Christ. I let his word de- determine what pleases God, what I chase after, what I pursue. And then I let his directions for my life dictate how I interact with people. That at the end of the day, what it means to be a Christian is that everything in my life that I thought was valuable, I am willing to put it on the shelf if I have to change or exchange that with my faithfulness to Christ. It's saying I'm willing to take any loss that he sends my way if it means that I'm faithful to him. So at the end of the day, how do we live? How do we live in the present age in light of eternity? And I think that his instruction is right here. It says this, 25, only hold on to what you have until I come. What I love about this text is it tells us the way that you and I guard against this pitfall is for us to just hold on to the things that God has already provided for us. All right. I'll tell this by way of a story. I'll apply it at the end, and then we'll be good to go. Um, I can't swim at all. When I was 19 years old, I worked at this sports camp, um, and one day we went out, and I took all my campers on this tube. So we're in a boat. Uh, This boat, uh, there's a tube on the backside, and there is a string or a rope that you have to hold on to. Um, And there are people in the world that would call this fun, right? So they made us all do that. Well, I can't swim. My guys were scared, and so they wouldn't go unless I went. So I get on the tube, and I got a life jacket on, but I don't trust life jackets. So I'm on this tube, and they said, hey, uh, once you fall off the tube, just let go, and you'll float. And I said, I don't trust that I'll float, so here's what I'll do. Uh, once I flip off this tube, I'm going to hold on to this rope. And my arm will be sore, and I will endure soreness because soreness is better than sinking. So all that you need to know is at some point, I know that this boat will stop. You'll either stop it or it'll run out of gas. But until it stops, I'm just going to hold on. As Jesus gives this church instructions. What he says to them at the end is, hey, I just want you to hold on to what you have until I come. He doesn't give them anything new to do, any new way to spot out the Jezebels that are going to come up, what it is that they should do. He said, no, you as a church, just hold on to just the ordinary things. He's just trying to instill in us that, listen, what a great blessing that you and I already have everything that we need to be faithful to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here's how we hold on. We hold on by keeping a close watch on our own lives, our own morality. We hold on, Christians, by not being afraid to do the things that the Bible prescribes for Christians to do. 
we prioritize the ordinary things that are outlined here in God's word. The early church gathered and they held on and they didn't have any books on a good small group structure. They didn't have any books on how to get plugged in and involved into the life of the church. They probably didn't have dope instruments and worship. They didn't have all of these things that you and I think are necessary for our faith to hold on. But what they had was a group of folks and they regularly gathered around God's word. They gathered around God's word together because they found out that when they all were in the same place, they read God's word. Oh, it cut them to their heart with judgment. But as they were reminded of Jesus, they were reminded that he was the comfort for their souls. So God cuts them, but he comforts them. God shows us that there's things in our lives right now that you and I are blind to that offend God greatly. He exposes those things and he lets us know the reason why he hasn't done away with us for those things is not because he didn't see them. It's because he was incredibly patient, and we didn't see that. But as Christians, when we see those things, we're gathered around God's word, we repent, and we're reminded that God's word, the judgment that comes from here, is this painful path to peace. When we come together to worship, we know that God doesn't just want one-way communication. God wants to hear from us. And so as we're a group of folks that gather and do the ordinary things of speaking back to him, we can come back and tell one another, yo, God actually responded to the things that I asked for him to do. And we're encouraged and our faith is built up. We find ourselves involved in God's word, not just speaking to one another about the things that God has done, but speaking to those that are outside of these walls that would never have interaction with God in the first place. And the more that we do that, the more that we see God at work. The more that we see God at work, the more that we know that God can work. The more that we know that God can work, the more that we're confident that he will work. The more that we know that he will work, our faith actually grows. And all of that is just the ordinary things that he's outlined in this word. It is amazing how many Christians are discontent with a Christianity that they never practice. Are you lonely or isolated right now? Have you done all that you can to hold on to God's word? God's church through the soreness, through that, just confident that it is hard. It is awkward to connect with folks. It's hard to build those friendships. It does cause soreness and bruising, but soreness is better than sinking. Are you confused and conflicted about how much of your Christianity you can and should check at the door in order to fit in? Have you gathered around God's word? Have you pulled in other people and asked for their advice and insight? It's hard work. It's tough. But soreness is better than sinking. Do you doubt that God can actually change people? Do you doubt that God can actually change you? Have you put yourself in a place where your life revolves around the mission of God, speaking the truth that we know is true, even though we don't feel it? Do you know what helps to grow your faith that God can change people? Is actually seeing him change people. And that takes place in the life of the church. That takes place as you and I are involved with giving folks the goodness 
that's in here. At the end of the day, the comfort that he gives is this. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery, just as I have received this from my father. I will also give him the morning star. Revelation twenty-two sixteen. the morning star is Christ himself. So he talks about this intimate relationship that we have with God and reflecting his very good shepherd rulership in the world. Basically, all that he's promising is that what we lost in Eden, the relationship that we had with God, reflecting him in the world, he's promising that all of those that just hold on to the very ordinary things that he's called us to do, he'll provide us with all of those things. It's painful to hold on. It's isolating to hold on. You may distance yourself from people as you hold on. But judgment, clarity surrounding what God likes and dislikes, as well as an invitation for people to come in, is the painful road to a very peaceful ending promised by God himself. My prayer is that we would be a church that is loving and compassionate and warm, but that we would never fail to warn people that are driving off a cliff that there is in fact a cliff there And I'd much rather invite you to be where we are, safe in the arms of our Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we're grateful for your word. We're thankful that you can reorient uh, things that are confusing to us, Father. We uh, pray that you would just give us the courage and the boldness that we need to faithfully uh, walk with you all the days of our life, Father. Uh, We're going to obey you imperfectly. Father, but thank you for not discouraging us when we fall off. Thank you for the encouragement that you've provided for us. That all those, all of us who turn from our sin and put our trust in you um, can find the peace that we so desperately need. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.